Hey there. It's so great to have you here with us today. One Chapel is a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area, and we help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. You can learn more about the things God is doing in this community and how to get involved at onechapel.com. I hope you enjoy this week's message from our Who Am I series. I want to start with a question. And the question is, where in your life have you failed? Where in your life have you failed? What comes to your mind immediately? Some of you are like, uh, everywhere. <laughs> you wouldn't be alone. Some of you might have failed in a relationship that you really cared about. Some of you might have failed in a career that just seems to have gone off track. Some of you might have failed at college where you just kind of flamed out, didn't work out. Maybe you feel like a failure at home. You know, you're having conversations that you think are going to go one way and they go a completely different direction. Um, I can think of a lot of failures in my life. As I was reflecting on this question, I thought about being a junior high school student in the Christian school, small Christian school where my dad was the pastor and principal. <laughs> and so many mistakes to choose from in those years. There was a, a really mean lady who was over the elementary and junior high and I did not like her. Her name was Mrs. Cox. And one day we were kind of fighting about something and I called her an old witchy hag. <laughs> Only I didn't use the word witchy. <laughs> I know, it's a problem. It's pastor's kids, they're nuts. I was in trouble. I remember when I was in high school and I failed at football. Flag football. <laughs> really sad. I was like 105 pounds, dripping wet. I played quarterback. I got smashed, pummeled. It was awful. I failed at writing my senior paper in college one time. I mean, I failed. Threw up. Uh, no commentary, please on this particular part of the story. <laughs> I failed in college. I, I, I had to take writing senior paper over again a second time. It was very costly and embarrassing. I failed at the most important relationship of my life in my early 20s and almost lost her but then I won her back. And I'm so grateful that God allowed me to choose her and for her to choose me. The best decision I've ever made after following Jesus. I failed spectacularly one Easter Sunday morning when I was leading worship and getting the choir ready to sing this awesome special Easter song, and we'd prepared it, but Mo was right on, teetering on the edge of whether or not we were going to pull this baby off, and we, we started into it in the wrong key. It was very embarrassing in front of many, many people. I failed as a dad when I've become consumed in my work as a pastor multiple seasons where I was absent, not present physically, or worse, not present emotionally. I bet you could think of a lot of times in your life where you failed, where things didn't go right. And the question we're asking today is, who am I when I fail? Who am I when I've 
failed. The reality is that we are all intimately and profoundly aware of our failures. Maybe too much so. Some of you don't realize you failed and we're gonna work on you too. <laughs> but today we're gonna to address this question of who I am when I failed because what we've been talking about over the last several weeks is how to discover the person that God has created us to be. Not the person that others want you to be, not the person that your emotions want you to be, not the person that your hormones want you to be, not the person that your thoughts want you to be, not the person that Facebook wants you to be, not the person that the culture is pushing and forcing on you, but the person that God created you to be. I don't know that there's any time in our lives where it is more difficult to ask the question, who am I, than when we've failed. And this is not something that's just introspective. You, you can't look deeper to find the solution. This is not something that you've gotta scavenge the aisles of the self-help category in the bookstores, even though those books might be great. No, this who am I question, and specifically the question, who am I when I failed, must be answered, can only be answered, by looking to the one who created you. Today we're gonna look at one of the major people in the New Testament, a guy who followed Jesus, but failed him spectacularly. His name was Peter. And we're gonna look at that. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll begin in verse 21, then we'll kinda go back up a little earlier in this chapter. Scripture says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Poor Peter. You know it's a bad day when Jesus calls you Satan. <laughs> You've somehow gotten your wires crossed in the conversation. Something bad has happened here when Jesus says you're Satan to him. And I think it's so interesting because, because Peter doesn't really understand what Jesus has just said. In fact, what Jesus has just described is the plan of salvation, the good news of Jesus, the good news of the gospel going into the world. And Peter's like, no way! Jesus, this is, this is never gonna happen to you. See, Peter, I suspect, thought that Jesus was describing failure, when in reality, something else was happening. I think so many of us can relate to Peter, right? I mean, Jesus had seen Peter fishing. If you go back to Luke chapter 5, you'll see that Jesus borrows Peter's boat and he teaches from it for a while, and then he tells Peter to go out and catch some fish, and Peter's response is, Jesus. We've been out there all night. It's, there's no fish out there. They're not biting today. But then he says this profound little phrase. He says, because you say so, I'll go do it. And they go out and they catch this enormous catch of fish after the whole night catching nothing. And the first thing Peter does is he comes back to the shore and he runs to Jesus and says, get away from me. I'm such a sinful person. What he was saying was, I don't get it, Jesus. You want me to follow you? I don't know. You're the rabbi. I'm the fisherman. But you know where the fish are. I don't get it. What are you asking me to do? What is this we're into? I don't understand how to follow you. And it is there that Jesus says to Peter, he says, don't be afraid. I'll make you into fishers of men is what he says. A person who catches people, not fish. And it says there that P Peter and the rest of the disciples, they dropped their nets and they followed Jesus. And you have to see that Jesus, as he, uh, as, he, as he calls these disciples to follow him, they are so imperfect. 
Peter drops everything. He follows. But Peter was a doer, man. He wanted to do stuff, and he was a little bit of a talker, as we can see. Sometimes his mouth got out ahead of his brain. Can anybody identify? It's like eventually Peter becomes part of Jesus' inner circle, but all the way through, we see this, this sort of recklessness, an impetuous nature that Peter has with Jesus. And so we see Peter got corrected by Jesus, but he also was highly praised by Jesus just a few moments before this Inter- interaction before this conversation, just a few years, few years, few verses earlier, 16, 13, Matthew 16, 13, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, I want you to notice that this conversation Jesus is having with his disciples is happening in a location that's pivotal. It's Caesarea Philippi, and Caesarea Philippi was a center of many religions. It was pantheistic. It it had lots of darkness. It had lots of idolatry. And Jesus goes into that dark place just like he does today. In the midst of that great darkness, he asks the who am I question. Think about that. In fact, he goes a step further and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied in verse 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, ding, 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 Peter, you got it. You got it right. It was a major success moment for Peter. None of the other disciples got the answer right. Peter got it right. And notice what Jesus says is the reason that Peter got the answer right. Verse 17, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You know, I think so often we think about these concepts. We try to figure out our own identity questions from a cerebral point of view. We're trying to think our way through it. We do personality tests. We do gift finder tests. We do values tests. We, we do birth order analysis. Everybody's real hopped up on the Enneagram right now. Like, like we do all these things, and I'm, and I'm not saying they're bad. They actually can have a role. There's nothing wrong with those tests. We use them around here. But I, I, I think even though they're helpful, they're sometimes they lack at giving us ultimate insight into who we are because at the end of the day what makes all the difference in the world for the who am I question is revelation from God. Something revealed from Him about how you were created and why you were created. It's, it's who you are, who God created you to be and has called you to be. We say this all the time at Catalyst 2 and 3 Catalyst is our uh, discipleship experience and walking together with a community, uh, learning how to follow Jesus. And in Catalyst 2 and 3, we always talk about this idea of purpose and, and, and what God has created you to do and to be. He's the one trying to lead you in that direction. But we say this, we say you don't often need more information about yourself. You need more revelation about who you are. Let me say this, very often, who you think Jesus is will reveal who you think you are. They're symbiotic, these two ideas. The way you think about Jesus will affect how you think about yourself. What you believe about Jesus will impact what you believe about yourself. Because he's the one who shapes our identity. He's the one who is who is working with us and in us. He's the one who the Holy Spirit is revealing to you who Jesus truly is. And he's the one the Holy Spirit is transforming you and I into. In other words, we're becoming, we're supposed to become more and more like Jesus. That's God's purpose and plan, to live the life that Jesus lived. And so for Peter, this is a big moment right here, and Peter gets the answer right, and he taps into the revelation of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and he, check this out, he even learns about his own identity, not just about the identity of Jesus. Verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is a pretty powerful idea. Just a few moments later, he would call him Satan, right? <laughs> it's a wild ride for Peter. 
Think about this though, less than a year later, Peter goes from being a hero where he knows that he knows who Jesus is and, and who he is to a place of failure. And that failure is an, is an incredible display of fear and a lack of faith and a, a, a struggle about who he is. He denies Jesus three times and ultimately he ends up denying who he is. Look at what happened in Luke 22, verse 54 to 62. It'll be on the screen here as I read it. Then seizing him, meaning Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had killed, kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Now think about this. Think about what was happening to Peter. Because the very one who got the right answer a year earlier when he said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Now Peter is saying, I don't know him. I don't know him. Verse 58 says, a little later someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter says. <laughs> See, Peter's who am I statement has drastically shifted, suddenly changed in a moment of pressure. This is the same man that Jesus said, right? This is what Jesus said about Peter. I'll read it from the Message Bible. Back in Matthew 16, 18, he says, and now I'm going to tell you who you are, who you really are. You are Peter, a rock, and this is the rock on which I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. But now Peter is not just denying who Jesus is, he's denying who he is. Who he is as well. And so Peter denies Jesus three times and then look what happens in verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. He looked right at him. Right there as all this is happening. As he's being led, he's about to be beaten. What a challenging, incredible look. This is, now this isn't just disappointing your parents. This isn't just disappointing yourself. This isn't uh, just basic kind of guilt or, or the emotion of guilt. This is, this is Jesus turning and looking at him right in the eye from the one who he proclaimed to be the Christ the son of the living God, the one with whom he had walked on water, the one who was his teacher, the one who was his savior, the one who he admired most, the one he had developed a close friendship with. You have to understand. See, we, if you know the story, sometimes it just, it just whizzes on by because you learned it a long time ago. The profound pain and disappointment in this moment Read it again, verse 61, as the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter and then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. When you're in the midst of failure, the emotion that comes with it brings you a lot of pain. The pain of letting other people down, the pain that the enemy will try to push on you and there, there's a pain, a lie from the enemy of your soul that will try to convince you you can't get past this. This is too big. It's over for you. The world is broken. The wor your world is over. You're never gonna overcome this. People around you are never gonna trust you, never gonna see you the same. That's what he's trying to communicate to you when you fail. And so the question becomes, who am I when I failed? Who am I when I failed? Now I want you to understand this because so many of you, a bunch of you are facing failure right now. Your mind is wandering through it even as we talk about it. And I want to ask you if, if you're dealing with the repercussions of some choices and decisions you've made in your life that have brought you to this place of pain. Not only emotional pain of failure but the practical like, implications of it. Here's what I want to tell you, is that when we face failure, it will challenge your identity. It will challenge everything about who you think you are. 
And the reality for every single one of us is that we're going to fail. You will fail. Many, many times in your life, you will fail. Because failing is not an option. (laughs) It is a literal certainty. But somehow we get so hung up on this thing. I want you to listen to this guy's life. If this man that I'm going to describe was written about in, a, in chapters of a book, I'm going to read you some chapters of his life. Here's how, different, here's how the different chapters would, would materialize. In chapter one, he failed in business at, tw- at age 22. Chapter two, he was defeated for a state legislature at 23. Chapter three, he failed in business again at 24. Chapter four, he was elected to the state legislature at 25. Chapter five, his fiance died when he was 26. Chapter six, he has a nervous breakdown at 27. Chapter seven, he was defeated by the speaker of the house at 29. Chapter eight, he was defeated for elector at 31. Chapter nine, his young son died when he was 41. Chapter 10, he was defeated by the U.S. Senate for the U.S. Senate at 46 years old. Chapter 11, he was defeated for vice president at 47 years old. Chapter 12, he was defeated for the Senate again at 49. It's a painful story to read, right? It's like, it's, it's like not easy to hear this. You're, you kind of want to say, come on, man, give it up. People don't want to vote for you. You don't have it. You don't have what you need. Quit trying to be something you're not. There's something crazy going on in our culture in people in their 20s. I've talked to them. And there's something that is kind of this younger side of the millennial kind of uh, generation is calling the quarter century crisis. (laughs) Quarter century crisis, come on, man. You just started. You just started. You're not even. It's, 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 just keep going. <laughs> Here's what the last chapter of this man's life looks like, though. He was elected president of the United States at age 51. You know who he is? Who is he? Some of you know your history. Abraham Lincoln one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. Listen, everybody, if you're going to fail, there's something you have to decide. And because you will fail, you have to decide how you're going to respond to failure because it has huge implications. And not just implications for the here and now, but who you were created to be. Some of you are facing really difficult and painful situations because of failures. Maybe it's because you took a shortcut at work and you got caught. You made a wrong decision and now you're facing a business failure. Some of you, maybe it's because you've had some failures in your marriage and it's escalated and so now you're facing separation or divorce. Some of you in the room, you've made some sort of connection with someone online and it's totally inappropriate. It's leading you down the wrong path. And now you're in a place you never thought you would be. Some of you, you've gotten into a heated argument and you've said some things you wish you could take back. And so the question is, how are you going to respond to failure? How are you going to respond to failure? How do you handle failure in a healthy way? Because all of us are going to experience it from time to time. So first of all, here's what I believe. I want you to get this. Failure can either distort or clarify our identity. It can either distort or clarify our identity. It has a phenomenal power to crystallize what's happening inside you. It's all about how we respond. It's all about how we respond. The reality is that failure can lock up your heart. It can lock up your emotions. It can get a grip on you. It can start to distort the picture of who God has called you to be. Or it can be handled in such a way that it actually brings clarity to what God has really called you to do and to be. Think about it. 
In those areas where the enemy wants to cause shame, he wants to bring shame to you the most. In those areas where the enemy wants to define you by your failures, God can actually use those things in your life to be a platform on which he highlights and shares his healing and his hope and his grace. Not just to you, not just for your heart, but the people around you. It's all about how you respond. It's all about what you do when you fail. And so I want to give you three healthy responses to failure. Three healthy responses to failure. I want you to write them down. Number one, remove your failure from your identity. Remove your failure from your identity. Identity. Yes, you made a mistake, but you are not a mistake. Yes, you failed in this area, but you are not a failure. See, what the enemy of your soul wants to have happen in the midst of your failure is that for your failure to lock onto your identity and for you to lose hope that you can ever move past it. I don't know if any of you watched Tiger Woods win the 2019 Masters Tournament. It was an incredible, incredible feat. I mean, this guy, he was washed up. It was over for him. His life was a mess. I mean, there was no way he was going to win. I mean, and then for a while, it was doubtful he would even play golf again. And so I was, I was doing some research and looking at this article that was written by Jeff Seidel from the Detroit Press, Free Press. He wrote a great article and I think we can relate to it. He writes about the difference between watching Tiger in the early years of his success uh, as a golfer and what he saw, how different it was on Sunday this year when he won the Masters. Jeff writes, there was nothing about him that I could relate to other than the fist pump, maybe. He was strong and powerful, unworldly, almost invincible until he wasn't. His flaws have been well chronicled, the infidelities, the divorce, the DUI arrest. His body broke down like a flawed superhero. Knee injuries, back injuries, Achilles, nerve blocks, surgeries, a spinal fusion. He went 11 years without a major championship. And now here he was, back on a Sunday, wearing red, pumping his fist again at the top like old Tiger. But this version was far more approachable far more human, and this win seems far more spectacular, probably because I can relate to him now. Not everything about him, of course, but far more now than ever before. I've limped around, Jeff says, with knee pain and can't quite turn my head without neck pain. I've gone through surgeries, and when talk, Tiger talked about his daughter playing soccer, losing in the state championship, I smiled. He sounded like any other travel parent. So I teared up, and when he was hugging his kids, because of everything he has overcome, I realize we all have our own struggles, our own demons. So I smiled, watching the replays as the fans were chanting, Tiger, Tiger, and he was hugging everybody in sight. It was a victory for science. It was a victory for thinning hair on our heads. <laughs> it was a victory for everyone who is flawed. This was a victory for the middle-aged. Maybe he's not middle-aged, not yet. Technically, he's just a few years shy, but he's been around for so long and his body's been so ravaged so badly that he seems older and I believe he's close enough to qualify. And that man with countless flaws and that fused body and the rebuilt swing and just completed, he just completed the, come, the greatest comeback I've ever seen played out over more than a decade. Tiger did something that seemed so impossible. He, he's a champion again, and that felt just like the old days, the old Tiger. And this time, for the first time, I can relate to him. You see, we have to see that all humans have flaws and failures, and they don't have to define you. Proverbs 24, 16 says the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. That's a pretty good verse. Here's what it says at the end of this verse. But one disaster is enough to overflow the wicked. Yeah. See, see, it doesn't take much to knock you off. 
But a righteous person, a godly person, even though he falls seven times, will get up again is what the proverb says in, in its wisdom. Listen, knowing your identity is the key to getting up again. Because you do not have to be defined by what happened. You can be defined by what happens next. Check it out. You do not have to be defined by what happened. You can be defined by what happens next. Get up off the ground. But in order to do so, you have to have a belief. You have to have faith. You have to have an understanding of your identity. This is really the message of the gospel story is, oh, I have many flaws that I can't fix. I need someone to help me. And you call out to Jesus. Look at what Paul said about it in Galatians 2.20. He says, my old self has been crucified. Everybody say crucified. You can't just kind of talk through that. Crucified is bloody and gory and awful. It means you died. Paul says, my old self has been gotten rid of. He, He died. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting, or another translation says, by putting my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, you have to separate your failures from your identity. You are not your mistake. You are not a mistake. You have a a design and an identity that comes from Jesus himself, and you have to remove your failure from, make it distinct from who you are in him. Number two, recognize the factors that fuel failure. Recognize the factors that fuel failure. Now think about this, how this was for Peter, because Jesus knew where Peter was headed, and I want you to think about this. Jesus knew that Peter was headed into a trap, right? Like we talked about, where he would be tempted to deny Jesus. Listen, everybody, very often, Jesus will try to warn you. The trap's coming. Here it is. (laughs) You can see it. He's going to warn you. He's going to help you so you can avoid some of these huge mistakes and failures. He wants to help you see it coming in your path. But I also believe that there are general factors, like there are, there are significant factors that we all need to be aware of that are just part of life that can fuel failure in our experience, all right? The first one is good intentions without wisdom. Good intentions without wisdom. I think most of us understand that bad character, bad guys, like, like, like they're just going down the path of failure. People who are corrupt, but the reality is you can have a good heart you can, have, you can have like good intentions and it can still end up in failure in your life. There's a lot of people that have really good intentions. What's that old saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You have to have something else besides just good intentions. You have to have something other than just a good heart. You have to have wisdom. You have to have a revelation. When you look at Peter, Peter was passionate. He had this giddy, excited heart, but he didn't always have wisdom. Proverbs 19.2 says it is not good to have zeal without knowledge nor to be hasty and miss the way. And that's why you and I have to be equipped. We have to have people around us. We need to understand who, how God thinks from his word. We have to study it. We can't just depend on what your relative says about you or, or what somebody else says about you. You gotta surround yourself with wise people who will speak into your life, reasonable and reliable people. Because good intentions without wisdom can still lead to failure. The brilliant founder of Ford Motor Company, Henry Ford, said it this way. He says, failure is simply the opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently. Another factor that fuels failure is emotional pressure. Emotional pressure, because so many of us are stressed up, stressed out, we've got anxiety, we're burned out, we're, we're, we're overextended, we get uh, overcommitted. And so what happens is you become susceptible to click on the wrong thing. You become susceptible to medicating the stress that you have. You become susceptible to looking for a new relationship that will make you feel better. Or you just look for something to give you some sort of immediate gratification that will help you cope with the failure. And so emotional pressure can lead to all sorts of failure. Third is willful disobedience. 
willful disobedience. Hey, One Chapel, none of us are perfect. Have you heard this? All of us have flaws. All of us are, have failures. We all make mistakes. We all miss it. We all get out of line. We run the car into the ditch every now and then. It's okay, but there's a difference between foolish ignorance and willful disobedience. You got to understand this. The Bible talks about rebellion. In other words, going against what God wants for your life, rebelling against it. It says rebellion is like witchcraft. Something ends up getting on you. This burden, this thing comes on you, and if you reject God ways enough, you get under a spirit of just rebelling and you'll move into willful disobedience. You'll move away from God's plan for your life. And listen, everybody, that will wreck your life. You keep willfully disobeying God, maybe not soon, but definitely in the long run, willful disobedience will ruin you. The reality is, in this room, a bunch of you, some of you, a few of you maybe, have hard hearts because you've made some decisions. You've said, I don't care. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Listen, everybody, don't do it. Don't dig your heels in against God. Willful disobedience leads to a train wreck in your life and all kinds of problems. Let me ask you a question, though. What, what's the solution for willful disobedience? I got it for you. It's willful repentance. Because if you can willfully disobey, guess what you can do? You can... Use your will to turn back to Jesus at any time. Jesus will never reject willful repentance. (laughs) Oh, this weird thing goes on in our mind. I've done this so many times. I must be just worthless. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, just come to me one more time. That's all he wants you to do. Come to me one more time. And if you'll come to him with your will... You can avoid willful disobedience and the train wreck that it will create in your life. The fourth factor that will fuel failure is circumstances beyond your control. We don't like this one. We don't like thinking about this, but listen, church family, we live in a fallen world and there's absolutely nothing perfect about this world. People will do things and they'll do things to you that will affect your life. Governments will do things and say things that will affect your life. That your employers will do things and say things that impact your life. And there are so many things in this life that are circumstances be, just beyond our own control. And the tendency is to try to control everything to keep that from happening. It's foolish. Yeah. The question we must answer is, answer is, what do we do when we fail because of some circumstances that we didn't see coming? The British statesman, orator, and author, prime minister, of England, Winston Churchill once said, success is not final, failure is not fatal, it is the courage to continue that counts. You gotta get up again. You gotta get up again. Listen, some of you have a big failure and a, a huge realm of circumstances that have been going on in your life. You're carrying guilt regarding some of the things you've done. You're like, if people really knew what was going on inside me, they would reject me. They, I, I don't think they would even like me. They wouldn't accept me. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth because I don't know if you've heard this before, but nobody's perfect. Right? No, nobody's perfect, but anything is possible. Come on. And I want you to, I want you to see How do you get some hope? How do you get back on track? How do you not get defined by all that stuff? What do you do? Number three, realize Jesus sees you and is working toward the best version of you. I think it's so essential that we understand that Jesus sees it all. He sees everything. He sees what you've done and he sees your future. He's working toward the best version of you. Listen to me, listen to me, One Chapel. No one can predict your potential like Jesus. Not your mom. I know she loves you. She thinks the best things of you, but even her expectations are limited by her experience with you. Listen, your dad, your family, 
your boss, your teacher, that coach one time, no one can predict your potential, only Jesus. No one can know what God really has in store of you except Jesus and his spirit, and he's calling you toward the best version of yourself. There's nothing in your life that he doesn't see. There's nothing he can't deal with. There's no, no failure, no sin that he can't handle. He is not intimidated or threatened by it. In fact, that's why Jesus came, to deliver you from that separation. Now, go with me for a second. What's the problem that Jesus came to solve? Was it really sin? No, sin's not a problem for Jesus. The problem Jesus was trying to solve is being disconnected from the source of life trying to live life on your own, trying to live life in your own way, trying to live life with, with thoughts of good and evil versus life itself. Listen, God is trying, he loves you desperately and he wants you to have his presence. He wants to be present in your life. And so, he wants, so he's made a way to eradicate sin and deal with failure. That's the gospel. So let's go back to Peter because he, where we, we left Peter where he denied Jesus three times. Look again in Luke 22, 61, verse 61. He says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter and then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter has this monumental failure in his life and you know what he did next? That's right, he went fishing. He went fishing. He goes back to what he knew. Instead of following Jesus, he goes back to the only thing he's really ever known. But here's the thing, everybody. If you don't learn how to handle failure, you'll go back to your old life. Yeah. You'll go back to the way things were. I've seen this time and time again. Failure hits and you run back to your old friends. Failure hits and you go back to your old lifestyle. Your old ways. Our, our tendency is to go back to the tyranny of the familiar. What is familiar to us when we don't know how to handle failure? That's what Peter did. He ran. He went back to fishing. He went back to his old life. He thought, that's what I'm defined by. It's my identity. I'm just going to do that. Sadly, he didn't think he was that great of a fisherman either. Because the rabbi always knew where the fish was, and he didn't. Here's what I love about Jesus. Listen, here's what I love about Jesus. Because Jesus comes running after us whenever we try to return to our old life. He doesn't let us go easily. He's chasing us down when we try to go backwards because of failure. Jesus comes after us. Listen, everybody, you can't outrun Jesus. You might as well surrender. Might as well give in. And give in quickly. Like you realize you got to fit. Oh, I need to spend a couple of days just proving that I can be a better person and then Jesus will love me. No. Repent immediately. Like, go to him immediately. He's the best option all the time. Look at what happens in John 21 where Jesus and Peter meet again. It says, afterward, meaning after the resurrection and Jesus appearing to his disciples, he says, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, eh, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. <laughs> Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? <laughs> I think Jesus was just needling them. <laughs> no, they answered. He said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's the writer of this portion here, John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. I always thought that was a funny verse. He put on his clothes and then jumped in the water. But I think there's a little, there's a little hint of what's going on with Peter. He still feels ashamed. He covers himself as he goes to meet his Lord. He covers himself up because he's still carrying around this thing. Jesus is about to remove it from him. 
John 21, verse 15 says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. See, he's restoring him to a position of authority. He's asking him to act like a shepherd. Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Of course he was. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Verse 18, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. It's as if nothing had changed for Jesus between the first encounter in Luke 5 and this encounter now. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus didn't bring up Peter's denials. He didn't say, so, what happened there, man? I think we might need to probe into your motivations, what's going on with you. Jesus didn't bring up his failures. He knew that Peter had been mulling them over. He knew he was suffering from his own failures. By the way, that's what Jesus knows about you. He knows that you torment yourself more than others because you know your failures best. Peter had been weeping and crying about it. Jesus doesn't bring all that up. In essence, what Jesus told Peter was, look, that's not what I want to talk about. He said, I want to talk about one thing, and this one thing that can break you out of your failure and move you forward toward what God has created for you, and that is, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Let's just boil it all down, down to the main thing, Jesus says. Do you love me? Because if you love me, my love will come in and saturate you and your heart to such a degree that my love has the power to move you past any mistake or any failure. My love has the ability to take you to the places I've called you to. Now listen to me. Jesus is interested in pouring his love into your life. And he, he's the source. He's the origin. The Bible says God is love. I want to ask you, I want to ask you this question because Peter, this is the moment where Peter moved from failure to becoming all that God wanted him to be, the fullness of what he was created for. And if you're in the midst of your failure and you're trying to figure it out, how do I, how do I fix this? How do I, how do I move forward? Stop everything else that you're doing and answer this one question. Here it is. What is your love level with Jesus? What is your love level for Jesus? I'm gonna tell you that God is the source of the love that you can give Jesus. <laughs> and when you realize that you're low in your love level, there is something you can do about it. You can turn to him and his unconditional love will flow into your life and begin to fill you up. Here's Jesus doing this very thing with Peter. Here, where's your willingness? You got it, you and I, we have to respond to our failure with a willingness to say, here I am, Lord, here I am. This is all I got, this is what I have. I have nothing else. Here's me, you see me with all my failures and all my flaws. Here I am, I'm gonna surrender to you and I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna receive your love for me. You see, you gotta fill up on his love. I want you to close your eyes, I want you to bow your head right now, and I want you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you about this. Because his unconditional love is the only thing that can change the condition of your heart. It's the only thing that can change the condition of your heart to move you forward to all that he's called you to be. And it's appropriate that we would come to this, the, the Lord's table. It's appropriate that we would be here at this place where the bread represents his body that was broken for our healing. 
so that we could be whole. It's appropriate that we come to this moment of communion with Jesus and we come to this table that he himself has set and the cup represents the blood of Jesus spilled out and that blood has the power to erase all of your history, to get rid of, to wash away all of your failures and all of your foolishness. This is the bread. This is the cup. This is who Jesus is and he's coming to you. And he's saying, come to me. Come with me. I'm ready for you. Come and give your life to him today. Fill up your love level with Jesus. Receive his love. Father, we come to this moment and we, we realize that our our lives can so easily get off track. We, we realize that we are flawed and the failures of our, of our past can always kind of come back and pull us back. And all over the room today, we're, we're thinking about those failures. We're thinking about those things. And today, Lord, we want to bring them to this table and we want to share them with you. We want to release them. And we want to receive what you have instead. Your love your truth, your identity, your transformation in our hearts. Come in this moment and do what only you can do in us. We receive you in Jesus' name. Thanks again for being here with us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, we want to help. You can find info about groups, teams, and other things happening at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. Have a great week.